Hello and welcome to the Informed Animal Ally presented by the Vancouver Humane Society. This is the animal ethics podcast where we share the ins and outs of topics like cruelty, legislation, and advocacy here in BC and across Canada. Hi, I'm Chantelle from the Vancouver Humane Society, and I'm here with VHS's Executive Director, Amy Morris. Hi, everyone. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that we're recording this podcast on the unceded land of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations. We are learning and unlearning every day, and we will make every effort to ensure the information shared on this podcast is presented with a lens that values truth and reconciliation. In addition to this being our first ever episode, this will also be the first in a series in which we'll be going over the topic of animal cruelty and particularly how that is handled and how it could be handled in the country's laws. I know the topic of cruelty is something many animal allies are keen to address. Amy, would you like to speak to what that means? Absolutely. We understand really that there are so many different ways that animal cruelty is conceived of and There's a lot of confusion as well because different species of animals receive different consideration. So we'll really be going into that in more depth. Yes, and the protections against animal cruelty vary massively from species to species and even within species, depending on how each individual animal is situated in relation to humans. So today we'll be talking about the laws that apply to pets and domestic species at the federal, provincial, and municipal level in Canada. That basically means that we won't be going into farmed animal law because it's such a huge topic and we'll be focusing on pets today. Yeah, so um, companion animals within the laws in Canada are covered under a section of the criminal code that the title is kind of concerning to me. It's the will willful and forbidden acts in respect of certain property. Yeah, it's pretty dark to have property be the way that we think about animals. Unfortunately, that's the way they've been conceived in law, essentially, since the Canadian government started. And it's really interesting that it is only conceived in that way because, for instance, the companion animals that have guardians are the exact same animals that could not have guardians in another situation. So it could refer to companion animals that have a home but not apply to those same animals if they were strays or feral. Yeah, it's it's a bit strange and, and that's why certainly there's a patchwork of laws that are essentially attempt to cover up the gaps that exist in the criminal code, laws that are at the provincial, municipal, and um, indigenous laws as well. And yet this law seems like it should have things more straightforward by this point in history where we know so much about who animals are and what they need. Exactly, and be able to protect animals from suffering in a way that inherently values them as beings and not only their relationship with us. Yeah, let's get into some of how the actual law is worded because I think that will help everyone understand it a bit more. One of the main sections of this law says that everyone commits an offense who willfully and without lawful excuse 
kills, maims, wounds, poisons, or injures dogs, birds, or animals that are kept for a lawful purpose, or places poison in such a position that it may easily be consumed by dogs, birds, or animals that are kept for a lawful purpose. So these caveats, such as willfully and without lawful excuse, really permit for a lot of flexibility. And unfortunately, sometimes that flexibility means that animals suffer. Yeah, I think there's much too much flexibility for what lawful excuse can entail. I found a case from 2014 where a person shot and killed her neighbor's dog. The dog was not attacking. It was not self-defense. The dog was just sniffing the ground at the time. But the person who was accused argued that she had a legal justification because the dog had been running around her cows and then had moved toward her. So she was convicted, but then the conviction was dismissed with the excuse of she had a lawful reason. And that's really common because really most provinces have laws that protect livestock. And uh, essentially, if there's any kind of thought that a dog is, they say, worrying livestock, then it's considered a lawful reason to shoot them. And certainly, I think these cases are pretty common where a person hasn't seen any any negative outcomes of the dog on their property, but they're concerned about it and they take action. And if no one has seen it, it's quite difficult to make a case either way for whether the dog shouldn't have been killed. And again, we'll get more into laws around farmed animals in a later episode, but the fact that it's worded as livestock in the legislation, again, is relating to those animals' relation to humans. They're live stock, they're live property for the sake of making profit. Yeah, well, there's so much to say about farmed animals. Well, it'll be hard to keep off the topic today, but Certainly, you know, there are so many ways that this, you know, for example, willful. So if it's not a willful killing or injury, if there's not a proof of intent, that's another way that a person can avoid being convicted. Basically, it's on the judge and if there's a jury to identify if there's proof that a person willfully caused the harm, which is a pretty high bar for the amount of evidence required in these cases. Yes, I would imagine it's very difficult to prove intent. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I should say at this point, and something to consider is that, you know, Chantelle and I are giving our perspectives, and we're not lawyers. And so some of these things, you can definitely speak to a lawyer who deals with the ins and outs of these, and they can go into a lot more detail. We'll be keeping it as much as possible high level to just give a general understanding of the laws that we have here in Canada and locally. Yes, thank you for making that point, Amy. The other thing I'm concerned about with this law is the wording of kept for a legal purpose, which doesn't protect stray animals or animals that may be considered to be kept illegally. What's an example of that? So there was a 1978 case, which was a while ago, but it still sets a precedent of a person who killed a cat and was not convicted under an old section of the criminal code section 401 because the cat was a stray who was being fed by a neighbor, which meant the cat was not lawfully kept. So the court acknowledged that a successful claim could have been made under a different section of the criminal code, but it wasn't, so it was just dismissed. Wow. 
Yeah, that's pretty dark. And I think that's a common scenario, certainly among stray cats. I hear a lot of people who consider essentially using cats as target practice or all these other dark comments, and they don't see themselves as doing anything unlawful. So that's a huge gap in the law. Yeah, absolutely. So the next provision in the criminal code under this section where animals are considered property is that everyone commits an offense who willfully causes or being the owner willfully permits to be caused unnecessary pain, suffering, or injury to an animal or bird. And then it goes into some provisions specifically around baiting and fighting animals. But this first section is really interesting because it's a little bit, I guess, more open in that it does include people who aren't the owner. And so if the owner allowed someone else, for example, to care for their animal and something went wrong, then they would be included. And the caveat exists still where it's willfully causes or willfully permits to be caused. And then it uses this word unnecessary. I'm curious as to what the word unnecessary means in this context. Yeah, I think this is another protection point where there are codes of practice for how animals are cared for, including, for example, when we talk about pets, there's the code of practice for dogs in kennels. There's a code of practice for cats in catteries. And so if there is some kind of pain associated with, uh, let's say, medical care, medical treatment, or something else in that code, then that would be considered necessary. I think that's what it's getting at. Okay. There's a similar wording in BC's code that's more specific that refers to veterinary care being allowed as an exception of pain being caused or death being caused. But this one is more open to interpretation. And I think this goes back into when there's a case of an animal, let's say, being killed. And this is where it gets really complicated because sadly, under the criminal code, a person can kill their own animal as long as they don't have unnecessary pain, suffering, or injury. And this is sort of to give them some pause. But again, the burden to say, okay, in killing this animal, you caused unnecessary pain or suffering, that takes quite a bit to prove. And I think a good example related to this, I don't know if you're familiar with it, Chantel, but after the Olympics in 2010, there was a sled dog business that instructed the main person handling the dogs to cull a large number of the dogs because they weren't getting the business they needed anymore and they couldn't afford to feed the dogs. And so what it came down to, uh, this person made a WCB claim about their mental well-being and suffering as a result of having done this cull. And they had to dig up the grave and identify if these animals had suffered when they were being shot. And it seems absurd that that's the degree that we have to go to to determine if anything has been done that's wrong. And so many people, including myself, were just so disturbed by that thought. 
that it's not enough that they were just killed because they weren't needed. I think that case is an incredible example of how animal lives are not valued because it's fine if those animals are killed legally because they're not making a profit for a human being so their lives don't have value anymore. Ultimately these cases really show the problem of this law being in the property section of the criminal code and one of the things that's happening is that Humane Canada which is a federation of SPCAs and humane societies is this year aiming to work with the Federal Minister of Justice to update the criminal code. And there's a few different areas that they're looking at change. One is willful neglect. They want to change that to negligence, to match the language of negligence in the rest of the criminal code. The other that really, I think, is crucial is amending the definition of victim in the criminal code. So that's at the very beginning. That's not in this section about property. That's talking about anyone who can be a victim. And right now it applies only to people. So if they can amend that victim to include animals, that would be a way of saying that animals are sentient. They're more than property. And that would be the first time in Canadian federal law that something like that would be done. And that would be massive. We started out here with the criminal code. And talking about that, I think it's really important to think about Indigenous law because those are the laws that applied far before the colonial Canadian system ever existed. And what I've learned about those laws from the Aboriginal Canada course that you can take at the University of Alberta is that generally speaking, Indigenous laws are concerned with the goal of maintaining and restoring harmony within and between human and non-human relationships. And that's so much stronger because non-human animals have intrinsic value within this framework. Exactly. And really the environment and our relationship with the environment is so poorly considered in Canadian law. And yet in Indigenous legal traditions, you know, they differ based on the story's history, ceremony, and worldview of each individual community. And yet they all have this commonality of being guided by the relationship between themselves and their environment. Would you say it would make sense if Canada were truly committed to reconciliation to take this framework into account more. Oh, absolutely. The sort of Canadian legal system is seen as coercive. There's less self-regulation and Indigenous law has more of a prioritization of the collective. So that means, for example, that specific issues come down to what the collective impact is. What that results in is restorative approaches that promote values including respect and consensus. And we can talk more about that when it comes to enforcement and when it comes to sentencing. But certainly it's meaningful to have a system that looks at the entirety of how we exist as essentially human animals 
and what other animals and our environment needs for us all to live together. Yes, I think that it's really interesting you use that wording of human and non-human animals in the environment because now we consider that a one health, one welfare framework where we consider the interconnectedness of those three areas in a Western tradition. But that same framework has been used by indigenous communities for literally thousands of years. So it's not something new. It's something that we as the settler need to reconsider if we're committed to reconciliation and truth. Absolutely. What I found really interesting is when you look at the sort of Canadian government's website about self-government and Indigenous self-government, there's a kind of mention that the criminal code continues to apply However, Indigenous laws protecting culture and language generally take priority if there is a conflict among laws. And yet we so often see that culture and language includes animals and the environment. And yet those considerations aren't necessarily made when there are disputes between whether Indigenous law or Canadian law is being prioritized when there is something like oil or another asset that that's what's being disputed. Yeah, definitely. And you can see that in the way that Indigenous protesters are treated when there's a dispute that's considered a corporate dispute over what to the corporation is a a profit value, but to the Indigenous community is an intrinsic part of their way of life. Absolutely. And I think we can get more into that when we talk about laws around wildlife, um, because that certainly gets us more into talking about the environment. But when we talk about pets and and companion animals, there are uh, laws that are similar to municipal community rules in Indigenous communities. Uh, One of the things that I think is really interesting is Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada requires the Indigenous community to submit their rules to be reviewed, and it takes years to do that. And so many Indigenous communities ignore that and they just have community rules that they enforce. And I think there's a lot of power um, being taken back through that process to having guidelines within communities. So those can include rules around tying up dogs or a span neuter or identification and uh, typically are, are centered on having a collective understanding of a sense of safety and well-being for people and animals in the community. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense if the First Nations are to be considered sovereign nations, which they are, to have their own system of laws and not be subject to colonial law. Yeah. Would you like to get into provincial law? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think provincial laws are so different because each one has taken their best attempt at filling in the gaps of the criminal code. And every province and territory has a different law and different ways that they interpret the law, which can get pretty complicated when it comes down to knowing really what is and isn't acceptable in society. And it's such a patchwork because not only is there a different code and a different written legislation in each province, but each province is subject to their own case law and all the codes are interpreted and written differently. So Quebec is the only province with a civil code, which is more similar to the federal criminal code. Yeah, 
it's so interesting seeing a civil code because they seem to essentially write things out more explicitly, which in the case of Quebec, they've written out that animals are sentient beings, which really doesn't exist as much in the rest of the provinces because of their case law approach. Yeah, it's interesting that they're the only province to have that in their legislation. Other provinces don't declare animal sentience in their respective written codes. Alberta did set a precedent for legally acknowledging animal sentience in their rulings in a 2021 case, R versus Chen, which involved an abused puppy named Cinnamon, and the court in that case stated that animals can be victims because they are sentient, which is what we're all working toward on a federal level as well. But that is really significant because the interpretation of many provincial laws and Canadian law in general is subject to case law, which means the law is not only based on written legislation, but also on the outcomes of past cases. Yeah, isn't that so interesting? Because of the fact that each province has their own laws, then the case law gets set province by province, which means, you know, they can look at other rulings in other provinces, but they may not use them. It makes sense because at the federal level, the law isn't very strong. And so everyone is trying to make up for that, essentially. That is really interesting. And the case precedents that we're talking about until recently haven't been accessible to the public. So all the public has had access to is those written laws, which don't cover all of what's legally available. Yeah, it's really interesting because all the previous decisions were even difficult for prosecutors and judges to access. And so when they were researching to make a decision, they had to take a lot of time and try to find previous cases. Now there's an amazing database that Humane Canada worked to put together and a center, a national center for the prosecution of animal cruelty, which anyone can go on and see all of the different cases and rulings that have been uploaded to it. And that's where a lot of the cases that we've talked about so far have come from. And we also want to note at this point that reading through that database is disturbing. So if you're going to go through it, it's important to have a an impactful means of processing emotion or else it can lead to burnout and mental health challenges. But you can access it at caselaw.ncpac.ca. One of the things that just really going back to that piece on sentience, because we know that that's the next step when it comes to recognizing animals, is that 32 countries have formally recognized non-human animal sentience, and that list is available on Wikipedia. And Canada isn't one of them. I'm hopeful that we'll see a change in our lifetime about that. I think we're working in that direction because as we move forward, Indigenous communities have acknowledged us for a long time, but legally the colonial system has not. And we are returning to that cognizance of how animals have feelings and animals have thoughts. And you can see in your companion animals that they feel love and they feel joy and they feel hope and they feel playfulness and they feel fear. But 
that's not been legally recognized in Canada up till this point. Yeah, it's so interesting because often it seems like the law has been used to do more harm than good, protect people who are treating animals badly, or even in some cases to punish people who aren't treating animals badly. One of those cases, I think, speaking back to the topic of reconciliation, is where essentially there was a unique species or I guess breed of dogs that came over a long, long time ago from, I think it's essentially Iceland, but they are called Kimmet. I don't know how much you read about that, Chantel. Quite a bit. So Kimmet, I believe, translates directly to sled dogs, and they were an integral part of Inuit culture. They were loved companions. They were essential for movement. They were essential for resource gathering, and they were so important that that having a well-cared-for team of Kimmet was the definitive sign of adulthood for young boys. So it was really integral to not only practical life, but also the, the culture itself. I think what I loved reading about the, uh, it's called the Kitani Truth Commission report. And I do recommend anyone who's interested in this topic to learn more about the Kikiktani Truth Commission. Really, the key point of what you said there is that the dogs were well cared for because they essentially represented independence and strength of an individual and their family. Yeah, absolutely. So essentially what happened is what happened with the rest of laws to control Indigenous people during colonization. The Canadian government legislated that these dogs were allowed to be killed. So the RCMP came in and systemically killed thousands of Kimmet and essentially wiped out the entire breed. It's so interesting because when you read about this from different sources, there's sort of this unwillingness to admit that the RCMP were doing this intentionally to harm the community. And yet it's so obvious that there's some sort of governmental accountability because the federal government of Canada has paid out funds to try to make reparations for the significant harm that this caused in the Inuit community. And there's really no way that those reparations can ever fully be made because there's no way to bring the Kimmet back. Huskies are used now, but they're not the dogs that were evolved to that particular climate. And that train of intergenerational knowledge was lost and essentially needed to be relearned. And it's so sad because these dogs did so much for humanity. In many cases, uh, they were used to do exploratory expeditions further north, and they suffered as a result the same things that the explorers themselves suffered. And at that time, the people who were doing the exploring, which typically included many Inuit sled dog teams with sort of colonial or western leaders they would do everything they could to make sure the entire team was fed and they would turn back 
if they weren't going to make it. There was uh, no loss of life, you know, no intentional loss of life associated with those adventures. And so to go from that and that degree of consideration to a place where there's these officers of the law who think that they have the authority to make decisions about how another society keeps animals is pretty awful to think about. And it's consistent with the same laws that were keeping indigenous communities in one place so that the colonial powers could use as much land as possible for their own purposes. And it's because the laws that were developed are obviously not consistent with what we would consider to be moral or what is right, because laws don't exist in a vacuum. They're written by people and affected by the society in which they come to pass. So if the society values profits and relies on class distinctions and doesn't value human and animal life, the laws are going to reflect that. Yeah, and it's still happening today. And one of those ways, and and I I mean by still happening, where individuals are being segmented, really what we see is when it comes to cats living outdoors, in some cultures, cats living outdoors is a huge part of the culture. Everyone collectively takes care of the cats and you know, you can travel to Greece or Japan and you can have these amazing cat colonies that are well cared for. But often here in North America, laws around spay and neuter, which you could imagine would be, you'd think they're, oh, this is a great law to have. They're often used to punish people who are taking care of cat colonies who may have the ability to feed the cats but don't have the financial capacity for the expensive surgeries that the cats require. Yeah, and you can see that in some laws in other places like Florida that require community cat caregivers to spay or neuter the cats they feed. The government can get involved and can get involved in helping with the spay and neuter to manage the population. And in places like, uh, let's say, New Hampshire in the U.S., they have programs that have essentially gotten rid of overpopulation because the government has prioritized spaying and neutering rather than mandating individuals to be responsible for it. You know, we talk about these specific cases and a lot of these laws are municipal, which we haven't fully gotten into. Municipal laws can be helpful. They can provide a different level of regulation that allows for neighbors to better get along, that allows for the better care of animals. However, they also have a certain amount of leaving it up to interpretation to the individual doing the enforcement, which can be good and it can be bad. Yes, again, it'll be a patchwork. And I think going back to the statement about Indigenous laws being more focused on the collective and collective well-being, that's something that I do think municipal laws aim for, but there's often a imbalance in who's considered valued in the collective and who's not. Sometimes it can be that people who are landowners who have property are given more authority or more decision-making ability and people who are renters and don't have 
the funds to own property are not given as many rights. Ah, yes. That plays out with animals because of the challenge of accessing pet-friendly housing. There's definitely a huge lack of pet-friendly housing. And not only that, but it's more difficult for people who can access pet-friendly housing to keep it. For instance, there, there could be requirements to spay and neuter for people who don't have the resources to spay and neuter, and those resources aren't covered by the government or aren't available like other medical care would be because animals are not treated the same as humans. And it's really interesting because, for example, in Ontario, they have this system where you can opt out, I guess is the way to say it. Basically, you have to provide housing to a person and their pet. You cannot make a decision to exclude someone based on their pet. But if there is an issue with behavior, allergies, all of the common things that get brought up after the fact, then you can essentially address it at that point rather than making an assumption that all pet guardians are going to cost more money or all of these other ideas that are not truthful. Yeah, that's a great point. Those assumptions happen all the time. The other thing that I think really affects people who are more low income are that a lot of the municipal and provincial laws that I've seen around animals are fine-based. So essentially, like any fine-based penalties, they have far less impact on the wealthy and more impact on people who can't afford to pay those fines. Yeah, especially when it comes to registration of animals. The idea of registration of animals is a good one uh, in that getting animals back to their homes more quickly is fantastic. However, if you disproportionately are impacting people who have a low income because perhaps they can't afford to get their pet spayed and neutered and so the registration costs are even higher, then you are essentially putting them in a situation where you end up having the authority to take their pet away based on their inability to pay for an ID, which seems completely outrageous and yet it happens in BC. And there's something that people refer to as the poor tax, where it costs more to have less money through various things. You can afford less bulk items. You can afford less sturdy items. But the fact that companion animals are considered part of that property that can just be taken away from low-income people is a testament to the fact that they're not considered beings in and of themselves. It harms the animals and it harms the people to split up those families. Absolutely. And another case of that is how, you know, I used Ontario for a good example and I'll use them for a bad example now, is dangerous dog legislation and specifically breed-specific legislation. And so this happens at the municipal level in BC. Uh, It happens in municipalities elsewhere in Canada and it happens at the provincial level in Ontario where certain breeds of dogs are considered not allowed and they cannot enter the province, which is mind-blowing because we know very well that, number one, it's impossible to identify a breed by looking at them. And so it's really a certain type of discrimination to believe one person when they say their dog's a boxer cross and not a pit bull and to not believe another person. 
And it really comes down to what that person who's making the decision feels about you and how you're presenting yourself and your animal, which is not a valid way to enforce laws. It's absolutely not. And I saw a case like this in Ontario where a dog was found and was not returned to the family for quite a while, specifically because the dog was believed to be a pit bull. And they had to produce a genetic test to confirm that the dog was not a pit bull before the dog could be returned to them, even though the dog was part of their family. It's pretty disturbing. And there are ways that communities think that they're keeping the community safe, when in reality, we know that the breeds that you could imagine are potentially dangerous are usually not the ones that are listed. And, uh, you know, for example, people who cross wolves with huskies are producing a dangerous dog, and yet they're typically allowed in communities while pit bulls aren't. And pit bulls are often the nanny dog, the dog that loves to take care of the kids and um, is just a, a total love and has not a dangerous bone in their body. Yeah, any companion dog has been bred to be domestic, but wolves, the reason that they would be dangerous is because they're a wild animal. So they're not intended to be domestic and, and to coincide right directly alongside humans in that way. Exactly. And yet they end up being a popular animal because of the prestige that someone feels when they get to tell people that it's a wolf. So, you know, if there is one breed that I'm concerned about in terms of safety, it would be wolf dogs. But really, legislation around safety and preventing dangerous situations really needs to be about behavior and accurate descriptions of behavior. That's absolutely incredible. So we will get into more about exotic animals and wild animals that are kept as domestic pets in a later episode, but that's all we have today on this subject. We'll leave all the links to the sources we talked about in the blog post on this, and you can find all of that on our website at vancouverhumane.ca. Please join us next time for an episode on farmed animals. Thank you. The Informed Animal Ally is a podcast by the Vancouver Humane Society. If you found this episode helpful, please consider giving us a five-star rating and review to help us reach more supporters of animals. To support this project and other initiatives to build a kinder world for animals, you can make a donation at vancouverhumane.ca. You can also follow the Vancouver Humane Society on Facebook at Vancouver Humane Society, Instagram at Vancouver Humane, or Twitter at VanHumane. The music in this episode is the song Jonah's Message for New York by Dr. Turtle, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Public License. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being an animal ally.